Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 10th, 2022. It's mid-afternoon in San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. I'm guessing most people watching at least live are not at work, although it seems as though these days we work all the time. There's very bad balance between work and the rest of life. We're going to be talking about work today. We've done a number of shows on work. We did a show a couple of years ago, a very interesting anthropologist, the South African James Sussman on imagining work in a post-job society. I'm not quite sure what that would look like. Uh, we've talked, of course, a lot about the impact of COVID on work, about going remote. We did a, a conversation a couple of weeks ago with um, the economist, uh, Matthew Kahn, about how going remote at work can save both our cities and our souls. Uh, many shows on the white uh, on the work life balance. Too much work, not enough life. Uh, Annie Auerbach, a British-based writer on work, argued last year. Uh, many of our writers and people on the show are not great big fans of work. Uh, Sarah Jaffe, the author uh, of love uh, of work won't love you back has suggested we focus less on work and more on love um and julia hobsbawm a couple of weeks ago my old friend talked about the nowhere office turning us into nowhere people um we haven't however done many shows on work culture that's going to change today because my guest is tessa west uh, NYU-based um, sociologist, uh, uh, thinker on work, and she has a new book out, Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them. And I'm thrilled that Tessa is joining us from uh, Manhattan in New York City. Uh, Tessa, are there more or less jerks at work these days than there were maybe before COVID or 10 years, 20 years ago? Uh, we all, of course, have a, had our experience with jerks at work. Some of us are indeed, without knowing it, jerks at work ourselves. Is this something that's getting worse or better? What's your sense? You know, I actually don't think there's more jerks. I think some jerks really up their game <laughs> during the pandemic and during this age of hybrid work. So some of the jerks that uh, we maybe didn't encounter before have really figured out how to take advantage of this messy workplace we're in. And I think other forms of jerks have kind of really fallen off because, you know, without being able to press the flash, without being able to, you know, stay late and come in early and have the boss see them do these kinds of things, it's actually really hard for them to get ahead. So I'd say that some types of jerks got worse, some kind of disappeared. What's really changed, though, is our tolerance for jerks at work. So I think we all knew that they sucked before, but now that we're coming back to the office, we realize just how intolerant we are and, and, and how much we're just not interested in dealing with these folks anymore. So that's really where I've seen the needle kind of moving in the past couple of years, especially in the past six months. Tessa, I wonder whether we're less tolerant on every front. You've chosen a word, jerk. I looked <laughs> it up uh, online, a free dictionary. 
Um, and one definition was a contempt, a contemptibly obnoxious person. What's your definition of a jerk, and, and why did you choose to make it the the central word and concept in your new book, Jerks at Work? Yeah, you know, I tend to think jerks are are not necessarily contemptible or obnoxious. I think people can be accidental jerks. I think, you know, it's not quite to the level of some other words we might have chosen um, to, for this book. Well, give me Bob some examples. This so you Bob, can say any word on my show. Okay, Tessa. I was going to ask that. So Bob Sutton's, you know, books on the no asshole rule, those are really about pretty egregious people. I think, you know, I swear all the time at work and at home. Is a a jerk then worse than an asshole or better? Nah, it's, it's, it's not as bad. And I think, um, some jerks really mean to take advantage of the situation to, to, to be terrible people at work, but most people don't who are jerks. I think the accidental, the unintentional jerk is much more common. And I know that sounds like an oxymoron that you can be an unintentional jerk, but I really think that most people who are jerks don't realize how badly they come across. No one ever tells them. They don't get this feedback. Um, well, or until, they, they, uh, until they read your new book, Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them. You also choose this word toxic. It's a it's a word that's in vogue these days. Yeah. Um, it suggests some sort of chemical imbalance. Um, do they glow red? These toxic wor- workers. Do they smell? What you know? Full disclosure. I actually hate the word toxic. <laughs> if if I could go back and, and take toxic out of my title, I probably would. It's very much in the moment. I think it's overused. I think we use it to describe things that aren't that bad, that are difficult, but they feel insurmountable. And so we label them as toxic. So when I when I use that word, when I talk about this stuff, I'm using it a little bit ironically. I actually don't think most of the people we encounter at work are turning us red, are going to grow three eyeballs on their head, or, or really anything that egregious. And if they are that bad, then they've kind of risen to the level um, that is beyond the scope of this book. It's kind of where you go next to, you know, Title IX or human resources or whatever. But um, yeah, I'll throw myself under the bus and say I don't actually love the word toxic. I think it's totally overutilized. It's um, a toxic Especially word. when we talk about toxic is toxic. We stop saying everything's toxic. I have a little, I have a kid, he's eight, and everything's toxic, that, that's uncomfortable or that he dislikes. Where's and he I, learning that word, toxic? <laughs> I hope you're not infecting him with it. He's like, person. mommy, it's your book title. I'm like, don't ever say that word again. I hate that word. It's overused. So, yeah, I don't know. It's in the air for sure. We did a show. We've done many shows, Tessa, on inequality. Um, we did one a couple of years ago with the French economist Gabriel Zuckman, a friend of Piketty, and there's a very strong, influential school of French economists on the rise of inequality in early 21st century capitalism. How much, and I'm throwing this word out again, ironically, because I know you're not keen on it, but how much of the toxicity at work, this rise of the jerk in the office, is a reflection of power imbalances? Is the problem with there being too many jerks at work that there is too much or too little inequality in the office? You know, people hate, um, this is not going to be a popular opinion, but people hate status hierarchies at work. 
um, we used to kind of like them and appreciate them for what they were because they told us how to behave and how to get ahead. But in the past five years, we've seen a real turn against it. We've seen people really kind of want to buck the system, say that status shouldn't matter, that power is dangerous. But the social science says it's actually the opposite. We actually need those structures and that power balance in order for things to go smoothly. Because when we don't have it, people fight. They jockey for status. They fight over sort of who should be heard and when. So I'd say that it's not that we have too much power imbalance. We have um, distrust of the power structures that we used to trust, and we want to throw them all away and not replace it with anything that's very structure-based. And because of that, it's creating a lot of conflict at work. We no longer trust that a manager or you know a C-suite executive deserves to be in that position. And a lot of times they don't. But in the past we did, and there was kind of this trickle down of information, that's no longer the case. And this power imbalance is super salient for people right now. And they think the solution is just to throw it all out and start all over again, which I actually think is really ineffective for dealing with the problem. Yeah, it's really interesting. The man in the gray flannel suit has been, of course, replaced with the man with the, te- the torn jeans who doesn't have the corner office, who shares the cor- cubicle next to you. But he still makes 10 or 15 or 100 times more money. He has enormous power over you, tends to be a male, although there are females, it tends to be white, of course. Are you suggesting that we need more visual symbols of inequality and power to do away with jerks? I think we need clear expectations of what people in different power roles should and shouldn't be doing. So what one problem we have is that the people who know how to get ahead, often by being jerks, do it through this kind of hidden curriculum. So my book, I talk about, for example, Kiss Up Kickdowners. They know they can walk into a room see who has power, who does not have power, know who they have to kiss up to and who they can kind of safely torture to get ahead. And because of that, they're able to kind of take advantage of this system. What we need is to kind of, you know, um, go behind the scenes a little bit, lift up the hood, create a system where everyone's kind of aware of who has power and who doesn't and what it actually takes to get ahead. So some individuals aren't able to take advantage of this power structure. I don't think doing away with the power structure is the way to go. I think being clear about what those power roles are. Yeah, I mean, my point is that we, yeah, I think as with so much of this stuff, we are deeply hypocritical in the sense that we represent our culture, our office in one way, and the reality is something else. So by doing away with titles, by doing away with formal dress, by doing away with big private offices, we think we've fixed the power structures, but actually we're compounding them uh, even more. You brought up, Tessa, the kiss up, kick down is one of your types uh, of, uh, of jerk. We'll go over some of the other types later. It's the number one type. Isn't that just a mirror of the world itself, inside or outside the office? There are always kiss-uppers, kick-downers, people who will get ahead, who will charm, who will build power, who simply are selfish and focused on their own benefit and nobody else's. Isn't that just the reality of the world? It is, but some places really encourage that behavior to get ahead. I met my first one when I was selling shoes. Um, at Nordstrom's in Southern California in Santa Barbara. And the ones that really are good at it are conniving and they are clever. And, you know, 
what what I think is interesting is yes, there's always Machiavellian people who would do this, but they need a boss who does things like hands over communication to them. So the boss no longer is directly talking to the team, you know, sort of ignores complaints because they're benefiting so much from that person. So we will always have these people, but we won't always have bosses who allow it to happen or inadvertently encourage it. And we won't always have, you know, people who stand by and watch it happen because they're too afraid to speak up. So yes, these folks exist everywhere, but you kind of need like a whole system to really bring them to life. What about the rise of mental illness in America today? We've done many shows on that as well. We had Thomas Insel, for example, uh, the so-called czar of mental health in in California on the show. He has a new book out. Uh, You're from California originally. How much of a connection is there between this somewhat, some people might call it even an epidemic of mental illness, ill health, and the rise of this jerk culture in the office? Yeah, there's this really striking data right now that like 50% of people are clinically depressed and fall somewhere on the clinical depression spectrum. Anxieties through the roof, you know, heart heart disease and, and elevated blood pressure and cortisol and all those like bodily signs of stress are are crazy right now. And I there's it there's a direct association between these things. I mean, one thing that shocks people is that if you deal with shitty people at work, it has a stronger and more long lasting effect on your health and on your psychological well being than fighting with your spouse or fighting with your kids simply because we spend more time with these people. And I do think we have to think really carefully about like what is going on with this, you know, epidemic of depression, of, you know, anxiety that's through the roof that we can't just treat away with medication and therapy. What about our everyday workplace interactions are contributing to it? Because we know those associations are there. I mean, I read a study showing that male impotence is directly associated with stress at work. It's crazy to find like that level of association between something happening in the body and something happening in your job. So it's a real problem, and I think it's yeah. I won't make any jokes, Tessa, about male impotence and (laughs) it should make you care, though, right? (laughs) If you hear that, well, that's why I don't work in an office, and that's why no one will give me a job ever. Uh, We had another sociologist, very interesting sociologist like you, Tessa. I'm sure you're familiar with her work from UC Berkeley, Caroline Chen. She has an interesting new book out, Work, Pray, Code, uh, and it's, the subtitle is When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. Her observation, it's not just about big tech, is that there's such a, a vacuum of meaning in America today that people increasingly think of work and the office and their professional culture as a form of religion. Do you buy that idea, and does it compound the problems with jerks at work because jerks at work in this world are profoundly evil in a sense if we if we're going to work for church and what we find are jerks it's particularly problematic yeah that's such a fascinating idea i mean we see this a lot in culture now that's actually among people who aren't religious are seeking out that meaning in other places either through like social justice stuff or in the office where they're creating these kind of cult followings around them yeah i mean we do see this i think it's horrifying I think, you know, you see this a lot with um, companies that make people super invested in the identity of working there as like part of who they are. You know, if anyone has, you know, watched what happened with Theranos, you saw this happening, this like cult of belief in what the organization is trying to do. And sort of regardless of- Yeah, and it's not just Theranos, which was a particularly, I mean, it was a sort of basically a criminal 
business, but WeWork and perhaps even yeah. Facebook and Google and many of the other big tech companies, they're all guilty of this, aren't they, Tessa? Yeah. yeah. I mean, anytime you make people buy into an identity around an organization where part of that identity is to not question what the leadership is doing and what the organization is doing, it's a problem. It's, it's cult behavior, like no matter how you kind of describe it. And it, identity at work is important. We actually need it or we disengage and stop giving a shit about our jobs. But when it goes to that direction, yeah, it's horrible. And we're seeing it more and more among young people who actually aren't religious at all, um, that they're seeking for that. They're looking for that meaning and they're finding it in these companies where they're like head to toe merch from the organization. Right. So, so, the kiss, there. right. so the kiss uppers are the ones who, who buy this new religion. But some of them would say, well, I buy it. I believe in it. So what's wrong with that? I think once you stop questioning or playing devil's advocate within the organization, that's when it's a problem. Um, so, for instance, if there's a gaslighter at work, someone who's creating alternative reality to cover something up, who's mm. socially isolating people, and you notice this is going on at work, you notice that the person who you used to hang out with and talk to and go to happy hour with seems really withdrawn and disengaged, but there is a culture where you don't question what the leadership is doing. You don't question this person's experiences or else that's that's when you get really screwed. I think with this whole like cult in the workplace business, it's much well, more common on the West with, Coast than the East Coast. Yeah, it's it's probably and in the middle, Tessa. I mean, even I don't know if everyone in the middle has jobs, but if they do, they're, they also come across tox, jerks at work, toxic co-workers and what to do about them. Tessa has told us she doesn't like the word toxic. So we'll have a better word for that. But it's a fascinating question. We all know exactly what Tessa is writing about. Uh, Tessa, after the, we're going to take a short break. After the break, I want to come back and um, not talk about toxic, but uh, uh, go over. You have seven types. I guess they're ideal types of jerks at work. Uh, and we'll go over those. So we're going to take a short break and then we'll be back with Tessa West, the author of Jerks at work. Don't go away, anyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page, um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page. You can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of 
recorded videos, uh, not live. You can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Kino. We are back with Tessa West, the author of Jerks at Work, a very entertaining, engaging book about the bad guys and girls at work, those toxic co-workers we all love to hate. Uh, Tessa, uh, you mentioned uh, the kiss-up kick-downer. You also talked about the gaslighter. There are five other typologies, five other ideal types of jerks at work, which others are the most jerky? Which are the ones that we really should try to eliminate, the most annoying and troubling? Yeah, I'd say among coworkers, the credit stealer. So this person is tends to be a boss or a good friend, someone that you can confide in and walk through your ideas with. And they wait for these kind of moments of ambiguity. So times when really no one's keeping track of who said what to really swoop in and steal. And the way they often do it is by they have a lot of status. They have what's called voice at work. So when they speak up, people listen. They'll take your idea, say it in a much more eloquent way, you know, in a more convincing way. And then everyone will say, oh, you know, really good job. We love that idea. And they, they tend to just kind of not correct. So it, it tends to be a very subtle sneaky behavior, sometimes even a little bit unintentional. And I think that one really drives people crazy because it's a little bit soul crushing to see your ideas uh, stolen over and over again. How are they different from what you call the free rider, your seventh kind, the credit stealer? They're basically doing the same thing, aren't they? So credit stealers are willing to do work. What they steal credit for is the stuff that's actually really intangible the ideas, um, you know, the creativity. So in a lot of industries, coming up with the idea is really sort of where the status comes from, how you get promoted. It's not even necessarily doing the work. It's the originator of the idea for the work. So in places like that, yeah, I think there's a little bit of overlap. The free writer tends to have all the charisma in the world. You know, they're well-liked. They're friends with people on the teams. They target teams that have a lot of go-getters that are conscientious, that will pick up the slack. And their skill is kind of swooping in at the last minute, giving presentations, you know, doing anything public that has the veneer of work, but they really did nothing along the way. And um, people tend to make up a lot of excuses for these people because it's often easier just to do it yourself than to confront them. And because of that, they get away with doing it over and over again. It, that problem got really out of control during the pandemic because people yeah, were people just working. Like, yeah. yeah. You have two kinds of bosses uh, who are jerks, the micromanagers, and then their opposite, the neglectful boss. What is worse, a micromanager or a neglectful boss? I would actually say they usually tend to be the same person. So um, micromanagers, everything is equally urgent, you know, and everything is equally important. And so they oversee everything you do as if it's critical to get it done right now, and even if it's kind of a mundane or irrelevant thing. The issue with these folks is when they're micromanaging you, they're probably neglecting somebody else um, or they kind of go in and out of that neglect. So what we tend to see with these neglectful bosses is that they swoop in at the last minute because they feel anxious from being out of the loop and then they micromanage you. 
the 11th hour, then they kind of like feel like they scratch their itch that gets rid of their anxiety and then they disappear again. So kind of the, the weird part about the neglectful boss is they also micromanage, but they just do it in these short bursts. Like, like they're going on a crash diet. It's a little bit like that. It's extreme, it's short, and then they disappear again. And you have no idea if they're going to ever check in on the work that, you know, they, they expected you to do at the 11th hour. You, um, we, we mentioned earlier, uh, the kind of people we've had on the show. We had Sarah Jaffe on, uh, uh American journalist uh, who has an interesting book out, Work Won't Love You Back. Is the fix for all this, um, Tessa? bringing love into the office, being respectful of others, essentially merging life and the office? You know, I, I think the fix is we need to be smarter about what our social networks at work look like and who we rely on to help us solve these problems. And so friends at work are important and close relationships are important, but those people are often not the best people to actually help you get through your jerk at work problem. What we tend to actually need more of is connections with people who aren't directly in our circles, who can connect us with others that we don't even know. But most of us tend to have like very small, deep networks. We really got into this during the pandemic where we just saw the same three people. I think the solution is we need to go broader. We need to spread out a little bit and not expect our closest buddies and allies to solve all of our jerk at work problems. Um, and, and I think that is something that most of us aren't comfortable doing. We don't learn how to do. Um, it's just not, doesn't come natural to us. And so I think that's a skill that I wish I had learned earlier and I try to teach it to people. But to me, you know, solving, solving jerks at work require friends and allies at work, but not often the people that we, we already know or already trust. You mentioned networking. Of course, that brings to mind social networking. You're on Twitter like all of us. Um, how has social media and its ubiquity, whether it's Twitter or, or Facebook or Instagram, how has that compounded the jerks at work problem? It it is it made it an interesting space for sure. I think one thing that we're finding is that almost every company checks people's socials before they hire, and so people which often is really get creepy, hired. isn't it? I think that should be illegal. I don't know your Twitter. I mean, at NYU there are people that we wanted to interview for jobs but we didn't because of some shit they said on Twitter. So I feel like people have to be really careful. What's really fascinating is like what LinkedIn recruiter does using their data to actually help place you in positions. So most people don't know this, but when someone from HR uses LinkedIn recruiter and they look for the top 50 people for a job, half the data they're using is how popular you are on LinkedIn, how many likes you get, how many reposts you get from people who work at companies that you used to work for because they infer from that that you are popular and well-liked and people still respect you. So they have all these measures of popularity built in to their algorithms that are that are directly influencing the likelihood that you will get interviewed for a job. So that's the stuff I think is super fascinating about how social media is impacting us. I think don't be a, don't be a dick on Twitter. It's a big mistake. It will catch up with you. But you should learn how, you know, LinkedIn and these other AI-based companies are using your data to place you in jobs too. And that stuff is often kind of stuff that no one really knows about. No one really talks about. But doesn't about. social media, and I'm borrowing your language here, doesn't it reward dicks and jerks? Yeah, Twitter does. Twitter is a little bit like the opposite of what we want from people at work. The more provocative, extreme, and whiny you are, 
the more likes and retweets you get. So we're actually seeing this happening right now in the workplace. The people who are popular on Twitter are less likely to get hired in jobs because what it takes to be popular on Twitter is the opposite of what we look for in a future employee. We don't want people who just kind of scream out into the void if they had a problem at work or a bad boss. We want people who know how to keep it on the down low and handle it locally. So it's actually, we're starting to see kind of a negative relationship between your Twitter behavior and the likelihood that people will want to work with you in real life. Yeah, and we're talking on a date, so I don't need to tell you where Elon Musk has announced that he's going to let Donald Trump back on Twitter. These are not, the, both Musk and I think uh, Trump would would certainly be at the top of most people's jerks generally and probably jerks at work. Who would want to work for either of these men? Oh, it's just awful. I mean, but it, it creates a popularity among people. And it's, you know, it's the number one quickest way that news spreads, I think. Um, and, you know, and fake news in particular. So we, we can't just kind of ignore this stuff. But I, I think it's a little bit terrifying um, how much people's Twitter behavior um, influences the workplace and vice versa. We're, we're seeing a lot more of that collision. Yeah, I mean, probably one one fix. If I ran an office, I wouldn't allow people certainly to be on Twitter during the day. It certainly doesn't make any people more productive or more social. Tessa, as I said, you, you teach at NYU. You run something called the West Interpersonal Perception Lab. There you are with some of your helpers and students. Um, this is a, a lab uh, focusing on how status and power affect how people persuade each other. It deals very much with minorities and whites and gender issues. Has our concern, Tessa, with race inside and outside the office, gender inside and outside the office, sexuality inside yeah. and outside the office, has that, made, has that made working more difficult? And does that make us even more sensitive to other people and assume that everyone is a jerk, they're a racist, they're a yeah. sexist, they're this or they're that. Yeah, I think it's definitely created um, an environment where people are very distrustful of the motives of other people. Um, what we know about sort of how racism and sexism and all that stuff usually plays out is through subtle behaviors that are, it's really hard to label, ambiguity, right? So. I study doctor-patient interactions, doctors who make less eye contact. They spend more time taking notes than, than asking the patient how they feel. Uh, you know, these kinds of things are what people pick up as signs of racism and sexism in real life. And so we have all that and people are kind of learning all that. And there's been all these workshops and diversity and inclusion. And what we're actually seeing happen is the more people kind of learn about that stuff, the more terrified they are they're going to do it. So they freeze and they do nothing at all. And we're starting to see this movement where people are so afraid of appearing racist and sexist that they would rather not interact with people at all who come from different backgrounds than them because they're horrified of what they're going to be accused of. Um, and they're horrified that their behavior is going to be construed in a racist or sexist light. So now we're in this place of, Everyone was jumping on the DE&I bandwagon, and now everyone's like, I'll say I want to do it, but I'm not going to be very engaged, and I'm just going to sit there like a little frozen popsicle and never talk to anyone ever again because I'm afraid I'm going to be canceled. Um, so that's kind of like where we are in this. Yeah, I like the uh, the metaphor of the frozen popsicle, speaking <laughs> of that. Do you remember Mike Pence refusing 
to have lunch with women, women. And, uh, to be in the same room as uh, somebody, another woman who he wasn't married to. That's a sort of an extension of this, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think in his case, he was trying to, you know, convey some sort of respect to his wife that I won't be with other women as if that's like a real actual issue. Um, but I think most of the time, you know, people are horrified of alone time with someone who might accuse them of one of these things. And, you know, Mike Pence, we make fun of him, but there are plenty of people who actually think that um, and act that way, but just would never say it out loud. Um so, you know, we're seeing yeah, this a lot I, with liberals. I, I mean, Tessa, I, as I half joked quite seriously earlier, nobody would employ me. I've had a couple of startups and I've run the things rather badly. And my experience with office and work is it's, you learn an enormous amount about people at work. In fact, if anything, I think you learn more about people at work than you do outside work. So perhaps it's simply a mirror of our, imperfections as human beings and that's just the nature of things is that possible yeah i mean i think so i i tend to be kind of a more negative person around this stuff that there's only so much improvement we can have and all my research is based on our relationships outside of the office anyway so i think that yes it's a reflection of just who we are i also think some of the tools that work in other places like marriages and issues with our kids and how to have conflict and how to bring something up without, you know, pissing the other person off, those skills we can also bring to the office. So kind of the good news is we know a lot about how to fix these things from the science of marriage and the science of dealing with a well, marriage you know, terrible usually, kid. Yeah, I mean, they're not always successful. So basically, we're all jerks, we're all toxic, and we should... <laughs> embrace ourselves and everyone else finally tessa i checked you out on rate my professor you do reasonably well what's <laughs> work like as an academic how, how do the the seven rules impact on professors are you out of this jerks at work loop oh no i we're all uh, lots of inspiration from my own jerk at work behavior um i've noticed a lot i think professors deal with the same shit that everybody else deals with you could be a hairdresser, you know, you could be working in retail, you could be a professor, and it's the same. I think what's different with professors is we have tenure, so it's actually really hard to fire people, um, and we have no HR, so it's really hard to have accountability. Um, but other than that, I mean, all of these types, I was the bulldozer, and that's actually what inspired me to write that chapter. Uh, so I well, think I hope all, yeah. all, all authors, in a way, Tessa are bulldozers, bulldozers, otherwise they don't get the book done. Anyway, right. it's a wonderful... Um, I really appreciate your honesty. There's nothing about you that seems um, jerky uh, <laughs> or toxic, but you're not shy to express yourself. And your new book, Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them, is not a typical book about work culture. It's, it's energetic and funny like uh, Tessa West herself. So congratulations, Tessa, on that. Thank you. Uh, finally, Tessa, um, in, uh, in mid-May uh, 2022, what else are you reading? What are some other books for our audience to get their teeth into these days. So one book I really like is Very Important People um, by Ashley Mears. And Ashley Mears is a professor, but she was also a model. And so it's all about the bullshittery that is um, the club scene and all the status cues involved and how things like 
champagne bottles that are twice as big cost 500 times as much because you're just displaying to the other people in the club, uh, you know, what a big deal you are. So she does this kind of fascinating sociological slash personal story of um, what it's like to have tutorial cues in, in society and showcase your status and, and how lame it all is actually and expensive. Um, so I, I really like her book. I also, my, my book tastes are a little weird. I'm kind of like a 14 year old boy. I read a lot of like young adult um, fantasy stuff. Mm. So, um, you know, and one book I'm really loving right now is by Victoria Leach. It's called The Lessons in Vengeance. And so that's kind of like a witch story, um, witchcrafty college campus stuff. If it has witches or gargoyles or dragons, I'm all in. Um, that's that's kind of like my preferred mode of reading. Well, maybe witches were the original jerks at work. Um, <laughs> well, they're misunderstood. <laughs> congratulations, Tessa. And, and finally, on that, um, on your new book, Jerks at Work, who who, um, who on um, uh, May uh, May the tenth, twenty twenty two, Tessa West, author of Jerks at Work, who's running the world? Who's in charge? In and out um, of the office. Uh, TikTokers. They're in charge. They dominate what my kid thinks of everything all the time. And they are just infiltrating the zeitgeist in a way that I have never seen before. Um, and I find it fascinating. And you could be like nine years old and doing it and just have more influence than I will ever have via your TikTok video. <laughs>